All right, just a brief recap. Uh, we will, like I said, we will be starting Galatians chapter 3 in a moment. Um, and just to recap what we've looked at so far, we've looked at Galatians 1 and 2. And in this book, uh, in this letter, Paul is writing to a group of churches in central, South Central Asia Minor. And he is writing to them because they are in danger of abandoning the gospel and going into something that is not a gospel. It is some kind of law and, and grace mixture. It is some kind of works being added in. And Paul writes to them because these are churches that he established, we believe, uh, during his first missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts chapter 13 and 14. He went through those regions and he established churches in Antioch of Pisidia, in Lystra and Derby and Iconium, I think were the four cities, if I remember correctly. And as he is back in Antioch, he hears word that uh, troublers have come in. You see that in verse 7, people who trouble you, uh, chapter 1. Troublers have come in and started introducing works to the gospel. So Paul starts off in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, to say in no uncertain terms that that is not a gospel. Uh, there is no other gospel. Those are perversions. Those are distortions. Those are our ways of emptying the gospel of its power. And he says, if anybody comes to you and preaches anything other than what you've received at first, that person, who, no matter who he is, whether it's Paul, an angel, he says, that person is to be accursed. And then the rest of chapter 1 leading into chapter 2, Paul then begins to defend his, his ministry and his message, as we said, his, his appeal to them on his, on his own behalf, how he talks about his own life. And the reason he does this is because there have been detractors, those troublers have come in, and they said, Paul, you're not really an apostle, or Paul, you are, uh, you know, you, you're not teaching the same gospel that, that the, the big three in Jerusalem are teaching. So Paul talks about his life. He talks about his life before the gospel. He talks about his conversion. He talks about how he has made at least two trips thus far to uh, Jerusalem and how he has consulted with Peter, James, and John. And when he did consult with them, they added nothing to his gospel is what he says. So, so uh, you have here um, uh, Paul, again, defending himself. And then... What we saw in the last couple of sessions, Paul then talks about an encounter he had in Antioch with Peter, where he had to challenge Peter because Peter was abandoning the gospel. He, he was falling back to the old ways, and, and Paul says, I confronted him to his face to tell him, like, what you are doing is out of step with your profession. What you are doing is, is something that is contrary to your profession. You are, you are trying to live as a Jew, and we can't even do that. <laughs> That's what he says. We Jews couldn't do this, and then we want to force Gentiles to do this. And then uh, last time we looked at uh, Paul, then this, this is like this pivot section between 15 and 21 in chapter 2 is a pivot section uh, where he talks about what the message of the gospel is and how that is the message to, to preach, that is... That is how we are justified. It is by faith in Christ alone. You cannot add works to it. Um, And then he says, if we try to rebuild what we tore down, then we are the ones who are the transgressors. We are the sinners. 
then he ends chapter 1 with that great uh, passage there that talks about union with Christ. He says, look, my, my old life is gone. My old life has been crucified with Christ. My old life is no more. The life I now live is lived by Christ living in me, and I live it by faith. Not by faith in works, but by faith. So that's, that's just the recap. Now, as I said here, I, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2 real briefly. It's just a couple of verses in there. Because what we're talking about here is you've got two extremes, and then you've got a middle lane where the truth is. Okay, You've got two extremes, and you've got a middle lane where the truth is. And, and that is what you see here. I don't know if I have it on your outline or not, but you've got free grace. That's the middle lane. And then you've got easy believism on one extreme and lordship salvation on the other extreme. Now, free grace is what we believe and teach. And that's what I want to look at in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, these are well-known verses, uh, if you've read through Ephesians at all, in verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul there tells uh, the Ephesian church, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his, that is God's, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the ground of our salvation, the foundation upon which our salvation is built is grace. The way we receive it is through faith. So it's not works. That's what Paul says here. It's not of works. Because if we receive salvation through works, then we have something of which to boast. We could say, look what I did. Look how I, I was better than everyone else. I was better than most. And then you can start having like class rankings. I'm, I'm the valedictorian in, in my class of faith. I was first in line. And, you know, and then you've got the salutatorian or whatever they call the second and third people after him. No, he says it's not of works. Grace is the, is the foundation received through faith. And he says this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift? All of it. Faith, grace, salvation, all of it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone may boast. And then verse 10, we should not divorce that from the rest. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the good works that we do flow out of, are the fruit of, is the response to the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith. The works come out of it. So when, when you're saying, well, when you're talking about the question of assurance, what is your hope? What is what, is what you're placing your, your, uh, your hope on for your salvation? It is not your works. It is not your works. It is, the, it is the grace of God that you receive by faith alone. What are the works? The works are the fruit that the Spirit bears in us. That is free grace salvation. Now, as I said, you've got two extremes. Easy believism, which is a reaction against any kind of legalism that tries to bring something into salvation. They say, no, 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 it's only faith. And we would agree it's only faith. But then that's, that's where they stop. Okay? They stop there and they say, all you need to do is at some point in your life have made some kind of profession. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do with your life. As long as you've made that profession, 
you're good. You're golden. Okay, you've got the get out of hell free card. You don't need to pass go. You don't need to collect $200. You can go straight to heaven because you've said some words. You've walked down an aisle. You've prayed a prayer. So they go to one extreme. They would ignore verse 10 in Ephesians 2 that we are saved unto good works. Then the other extreme, which was really kind of combating the easy believism, is the lordship salvation, which says, no, 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 you can't have Christ as Savior and not admit him as Lord. And again, we would agree with that. Christ is Lord. Amen? Okay, Christ is Lord. He is, you don't make him Lord. You don't say, okay, now I'm going to make Christ the Lord of my life. No, he is the Lord. Right? We do have to obey him. But what lordship salvation does is it confuses the, the grace and law and kind of mixes them together. So then what you're doing then in lordship salvation is you're looking at your works as evidence of my salvation. You're, you're basing your assurance on my works. And what that does is that creates confusion. It creates anxiety because you're like, I haven't done enough. I'm not, you know, I got to work harder at this because God is not pleased with me if I'm not obeying. And then you start, you're, you're, the ground of your salvation is never yourself. Okay? The ground of your salvation is never yourself. And Lordship salvation has a tendency to turn your focus away from Christ and looking at your works and saying, are you giving the, uh, the appropriate evidence of your faith? Are you proving that you are saved? Right? So there's... There's that, the other extreme, free grace, uh, easy believes them, but in the middle is free grace. It says, our salvation is based on nothing except the foundation of grace, which we receive through faith, and then that produces good works. And if you look at your life and you don't see good works, if you don't see fruit, well, the point is, is that a, a person who is a saved person will bear fruit. It just happens. It will happen. Okay, there is no such thing as a person who's been justified by faith in Christ alone who will not bear fruit. Now, of course, we recognize Romans 7 teaches that we struggle in this world. We struggle with the flesh because we have a part of us that is unredeemed. As Paul says in Romans uh, 7.18, I have the desire to do what is right, but I lack the power. I don't have the power in me, which is... Why at the end of chapter 7, he says, wretched man that I am, who will, you know, where is my hope? It's in Christ Jesus alone. And then he goes on in chapter 8 to talk about how the Spirit works in you. The Spirit comes in you and dwells within you and and produces uh, the fruit that you need. We're going to look at this in the coming weeks. But if you look at chapter 5 of Galatians, and this will be my last little diversion before we get into it. Chapter 5 of Galatians, starting in verse 16. So just like maybe a page or two over to the left. So Paul there says in chapter 5, verse 16 of Galatians, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. There's that battle within us. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the flesh, that, that unredeemed part of you, is that beachhead through which the world, the flesh, the devil bring temptation into our lives. 
But verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, very important here. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And he goes on and gives a list of them in verses 19, 20, and 21. Uh, we won't go into detail there. But notice the, the, then in verse 22, the contrast. But the fruit of the Spirit is, then you've got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So you've got a, he's making a contrast between works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. So, fruit, okay, is that something you make grow on yourself? No, right? You can't make fruit grow. Fruit grows as an evidence of life in the plant, right? If you are living, you will breathe. If you are living, you will grow. That's just a product of being alive. You breathe, you grow, you do things, you move if you're alive. If you're alive in the Spirit, you will bear fruit. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not that struggle again, right? As he says in verses 16 and 17, that desire of the flesh and all that stuff. But then the works of the flesh, that's what we do. And that's what results in works of the flesh. So again, saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, unto good works, which are the byproduct, the result of, and the response to the fact that we have been saved. Now you can go over to Galatians 3. Because that's what he's going to talk about here. And, and really through the rest of 3 and 4 and heading into 5 of uh, Galatians, he is done, for the most part, talking about... Um, defending his ministry and message. And now he's really, he's now making it a direct appeal to the Galatians. He's, he's going to them and he's now going to turn his sights on their error and he's going to turn his sights on, on describing the, 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 you know, the genesis of their error and, 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 and how to uh, combat the error. So he's going to talk about, and there's going to be some confusing things uh, in chapters 3 and 4 um, that we'll get into when we get to it. But again, we're just going to look at the first five verses of chapter 3. And Paul here is going to ask five rhetorical questions. Right? So that's why you have five points in your, on your handout. Five points, five questions. Okay? And you're thinking, well, how are you going to get through five points? I'll get through five points. Don't worry. I'll get through five points. I, I see the faces. You of little faith. You of little faith. All right, so he's going to look at five questions here, and all of these questions are meant to direct the Galatians to see that you cannot add works of the law to the gospel. That's essentially what he's going to do. And that the Christian life is one that is lived by faith, through faith, ends in faith, begins in faith, from, you know, so however you want to put it. And that's really my theme for this morning, very short and sweet. The Christian life is a life from, of faith from beginning to end. The Christian life is a life of faith from beginning to end. So let's look at verses 1 through 5 of Galatians 3, where he starts off, O oh, foolish Galatians! That's a way to start off, don't you think? <laughs> you fools! <laughs> a way to win friends and influence people there. You know, Dale Carnegie would not be happy. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Again, twice. Having begun by the Spirit, are you not being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So we'll stop there. Like I said, we'll you know, look at the rest next week. or well, Sorry, in three weeks, because I won't be here for the next two weeks, but Lord willing. So there you have it. There's the passage. Um, five questions, and we're going to look at them one at a time. So verse 1, foolish Galatians. Uh, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's the question. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So again, as I said earlier, he pivots. He's pivoting now to his direct appeal to the Galatian believers. And he begins, as I said, by calling them fools, foolish. The word means you're unwise, you're lacking in understanding, you're missing something. <laughs> you're missing something. You're not, you're, you don't have all the information. Um, and his tone is very reminiscent of what you saw earlier in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where again he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different or another gospel. So then he asks him, like, who bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? That's, that's kind of where, where the, the language is. Uh, other translations, I like the NIV and the uh, Christian Standard Bible, they say, who has cast an evil spell on you? You know, and, 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 and it's the language of, of pagan magic. You know, who has who uh, warped your mind? Who has come in and lured you away? But again, think of the lure that works can be. And you can see why Paul is using this language. You can see why Paul is, is speaking of them as being uh, bewitched. Because works of the law is very appealing to our flesh. Right? It's very appealing to our flesh. We like to be able to say, I, I contributed something to my salvation, right? There, there, that's, that's, you know, who doesn't want to say that, right? I mean, who doesn't want to go up, you know, when you go before, you know, St. Peter at the pearly gates, if that's a thing, you know, you go up to him and you say, I, I, look, okay, I know Christ did 99.9, but I did that 1.1%. I mean, I, I did that. That was me. Jesus took from one goal line, he took it all the way to the other goal line, but by golly, I was the one who scored the touchdown. I mean, who doesn't want to say that? Right? I often think of the Bears' 85 Super Bowl win, and um, we had the great running back, Walter Payton, who had over 16,000 rushing yards in his career, and that year on the Super Bowl, he, that season, he had 1,500 yards rushing, and it was his first ever Super Bowl and, you know, there were so many plays where they got up to the goal line, but that was the year when they had William Refrigerator Perry, and they kept giving him the ball in short yardage. So, you know, Peyton and the other running backs would get right up to the goal line, and then he'd give it to this big defensive tackle who was kind of like a sideshow for the Bears, and he would score the touchdown. So Walter Peyton, you know, ends up winning a Super Bowl but not having scored at all in a Super Bowl in his entire career. It's kind of like, you know, hey, I want to have that one little piece to my salvation. Look at, uh, you don't need to turn there, but in um, Galatians 5, verses 7 and 8, 
Paul there says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That's this idea of being bewitched again. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. In other words, this lure of adding works of the gospel does not come from Christ. It comes from these troublers who have come in and they're bewitching you. There's a similar sentiment in 2 Corinthians 11 where he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their work. So this idea of bewitching, it's like, even though it's coming through human influence, you can almost feel that you know, Satan's behind it. Because what does Satan want to do to the Christian? Right? He wants to, he wants to uh, fool you. He wants to deceive you. He wants to trip you up. He wants to make you stumble. He doesn't want you to live a good, healthy, growing Christian life. And he will throw whatever obstacles in the way that he can. And one such obstacle is to make yourself... The, the, the star of the story, right? To, to kind of say, look, you can do this. You can add some works. You need to add some works to this, to this gospel. So it's appealing. That's the bewitching part of it. It's appealing because it gives us a role in our salvation. And, and what astonishes Paul so much is as he says there, look, was not Christ publicly portrayed before you as crucified? The preaching of Christ that Paul did there. Paul is saying, look, it was so vivid. It was so compelling. It was as if you were there. It, the, the preaching of the gospel was such that he was almost as if he was publicly portrayed before you as crucified. The, the gospel of Christ crucified was so vivid. It was as if they were there. So clear. So clear. Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians, right? When we looked at that, chapter 1. But we preach Christ crucified. We don't preach anything else. We preach the gospel. That's just shorthand for the gospel. It's not that Paul went up there and said, Good morning, my name is the Apostle Paul. Christ crucified. Be blessed. Have a great day. No, it's not literal. That's all I said. But you know, some people would wish that would be all I said. But anyway... He says, no, we preach Christ crucified. We preach to you the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So it baffles Paul. How can you want to add works to that? Why would you want to add works to that? So again, going back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where you know, I could say if I, me, or anyone else that comes into this pulpit and preaches to you a different gospel than Christ died for your sins, then you need to run, you need to flee, you need to pull me from the pulpit, you need to beat me with the Bible or something, do something. If I preach anything to you up here other than Christ and Him crucified, if I preach anything up, to, up here besides the gospel of free grace, remove me. Take me out. If I start preaching works, if I start preaching law, except other than to crush you with the law so that I can bring the gospel to you, or use the law as a guide for your life to live as a result of your salvation, remove me from this pulpit. 
Do not let anybody rob you of the gospel. That's what Paul will say later in chapter 5, verse 1. The key, my, my, my key verse for this book. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not let anybody put you under a yoke of slavery with works. Adding works to the gospel. Second point, receiving the Spirit, verse 2. So let me ask you only this, the second question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he inquires of how they came to faith. That idea of receiving the Spirit is, is, is he's talking about conversion. How did you receive the Spirit? How was the Spirit given to you? Was it received by works? Did you do something to earn it? Did you, you, know, did you follow the steps and at the end you were rewarded? Here's your certificate. You get the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much for, for trying. Or, or do, you hear, do you receive it through the hearing with faith? Now, now the question is rhetorical. right? Paul is saying, no, look, you cannot receive it by works. It is only by hearing with or of or through faith, however you want to phrase that. Consider in the book of Acts, right, all of the conversions that you hear there where the Spirit comes down. It's always someone like Peter goes into the house of Cornelius and, and preaches the, the gospel to them. And then they hear and they believe and they're filled with the Spirit. Or on Pentecost Sunday, Peter preaches to them and they hear and they're convicted. They're cut to the heart and they're filled with the Spirit. Or Paul goes out and he preaches to somebody and they're convicted. They're cut to the heart and they're filled with the Spirit. It is always through the hearing with faith. Once you hear the message, the Spirit uses that word to bring you to life so that you hear with faith and then you believe and then the Spirit indwells you. Now, the Judaizers, troublers here, were making the argument, or at least the conclusion that you have to draw from what they're saying is that one must do something to receive the Spirit. To which I would ask, what could you possibly do to receive the Holy Spirit? What is it that you could possibly do to receive the Holy Spirit? The very concept is absurd. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 14 of Galatians, Paul there writes that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Or in Ephesians 1, in Him, Christ, you trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Or as Paul will say in Romans 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They hear, they believe, they receive the Spirit. They hear, they believe, they receive the Spirit. It is received through the hearing of faith. It is not works. There's nothing you can do to receive the Spirit. And again, just, you know, this is conversion, right? It is, it, you are converted through the hearing of or the hearing with faith. In fact, we believe and teach that regeneration, the process by which you receive the new birth, right? John chapter 3, how, how does one see the kingdom of God? You receive it by being born again. Uh, that that precedes faith. You have to be born again before you can even respond in faith. 
Because a faith response, again, is a sign of life. And if you are a dead sinner, someone who is still dead in their sins and trespasses, you don't have the life necessary to believe. You have to be born again. The Spirit has to regenerate you, has to quicken you. The Spirit must give you ears to hear with faith. Third, perfected by the flesh. Verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And this third question, in my opinion, is the key. This is the key to this passage and, and one that Christians need to understand. And again, notice he calls them foolish again. <laughs> you're unwise. You're, you're lacking something. You are lacking understanding. You're not seeing the whole picture of this whole thing. How can you begin the Spirit and then be perfected in the flesh? Very simple question. How can you begin in the Spirit and then somehow perfected in the flesh? And when you think about this, when you just step back and sit down and just think about that for a moment and reflect on it, you can see how absurd the concept is, right? How can we add in the flesh to what the Spirit started? It's like... (laughs) It would be like, you know, you get a famous painter from way back in the day. You get like a Rembrandt or somebody, and he paints a painting, and then I go in and I try to, I try to finish it with my, you know, <laughs> here, let me, let me add to that, uh, you know, Mr. Rembrandt. I'm, I'm sure I can perfect this with my few brush strokes here at the end or something like that, right? Uh, no, you can't do that. Being, be, uh, sorry, being begun, is that, can, can you say it that way? Being begun, (laughs) having been begun in the spirit, if you're perfected in the flesh, that's a digression, right? That is a digression. It is moving in the opposite direction. It's it's moving from the power of the spirit to the powerlessness of the flesh. Again, remember Romans 7.18, Paul says again, very clearly, I have the desire to do what is right, but I know in my flesh, in my person, I have no power. I lack the power to do what I want to do. So if you are having been begun in the spirit, if you are being perfected in the flesh, you're moving in the wrong direction. You're moving, you're digressing. You're moving from power to powerlessness. Paul will say this later in Galatians 5 as well. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly await for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Again, you cannot begin in power and then finish. It's trusting in lesser things. Right to accomplish the work of God, Philippians one verse six. Right, we know that well. Right, uh, he who began a good work in you will let you finish it in the day of Christ Jesus. Is that how it goes? No, he who began a good work in you, he will finish it. He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It's like no, I don't need your help. <laughs> I will carry you along from beginning to end. Don't worry about it. Don't add your brush strokes to my masterpiece. Thank you very much. Uh, 
and, and the Judaizers here in Galatians, they're saying, like, look, the Spirit, you're, we're going to finish with Moses what Christ has begun, right? And, and you can just, when you hear that, it's like, okay, no, you're going backwards, right? right? You're saying you've begun with Christ, but now I'm going to be finished by, by Moses? Wasn't Christ like the fulfillment of Moses? Yeah. So, you're, you're, again, you're going to lesser things to accomplish the work of Christ, and that's what the whole book of Hebrews really is about, right? Is at least one of the main uh, themes of the book of Hebrews is that they were in danger, the, the people who were the recipients of that letter, they were in danger of abandoning the gospel and going back to the old covenant. And, and the writer is like, you can't do that. The old covenant is gone. It is like Elvis. It has left the building. You, can't, you cannot be saved by the old covenant anymore. The new covenant, it's like if you abandon that, you, you, you abandon all hope of salvation. So I asked what I asked last time. What can we possibly add to the finished work of Christ? Nothing. I mean, the very uh, concept is absurd. Because it makes what Jesus said on the cross in John 19.30 kind of null and void. He said what? It is finished. Now, if you can complete in the flesh what Christ has begun in the Spirit, then what Jesus ought to have said on the cross is, well, I've begun the work. Now it's up to you to take the baton and cross the finish line, okay? Can you do that? Can you do that for me? Come on, you could do it. You know, and then he's like a coach up there encouraging you. You could do it. It's like, no, I can't. I'm falling the power of the flesh. Ah. No. <laughs> it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. You cannot add to it because God will finish it, right? With the work I began, I'm going to finish in you. Fourth question, verse 4, suffering in vain. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? That word there, suffering, Greek word is pasco. You can kind of, paschal, you can kind of hear that Easter, you know, language there is the sacrificial suffering. Now, the word essentially has, it's a neutral in meaning. It, it can just mean experience, whether good or bad. Uh, and, and some use it to speak of that way. They, they, they don't think of this as suffering. They think of experience. You might have a footnote that says, or it can mean experience. Uh, did you experience so many things? So in that sense, like, well, didn't you experience a new birth? Didn't you experience the Spirit working in you? Didn't you experience uh, sanctification? But Paul's meaning here, and I, I believe uh, the way the word is used mainly in the New Testament, it speaks of suffering. It speaks of suffering, right? Uh, Paul will say again in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. The two go hand in hand, right? You cannot be a Christian and not expect to have some kind of suffering in this world. Why? Well, because Jesus says, as we'll see in some weeks, the world hates you, <laughs> right? The world hates you. Why? Because it hated me first. So you're going to get some suffering. And, and Paul here is saying, look, all of the things you suffered for the faith would be vain and empty if you went back to works of the law. Again, it's like that Hebrews thing, right? They were, they were experiencing persecution. Like, well, forget that. I want to go back to where it was before where I wasn't experiencing any persecution. So he's like, look, if you're, going to go, if you're going to go back to and add works of the law, then everything you've suffered so far for your faith will be in vain. 
They were likely being persecuted for justification by faith alone. But then adding works then only empties the gospel of any saving power. And it makes their suffering in vain. Second Peter, you don't need to turn here. It's on my list of scriptures to read. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. I'm talking about false teachers here. Uh, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. In other words... If you go back, you are rejecting the, the gospel. You're rejecting the only way of salvation. A professor uh, of mine made, made this analogy. It's like, you know, you have those jetways that take you to the plane, right? And then uh, the plane is like the new covenant, the gospel. The jetway would be the old covenant leading you to that and pointing you to that. It's like if you exit the plane and go back on the jetway... <laughs> Right? Are you going to get to your destination? No, the plane's going to leave without you. Right? And in a lot of cases, that jetway is removed from the plane anyway. So when you're at the door of the plane, you're going to like, oh, where did the jetway go? You can't go back. You can't go backwards. You can't go backwards in redemptive history. Now, of course, it's easy in our culture particularly, where we're a little less persecuted than, than most Christians have ever been, throughout the history of the entire church and through, the, through really the rest of the world, um, it could be very easy and tempting to do anything to avoid pain, right? Who wants pain? I don't like pain. Do you like pain? Uh, no, I don't like pain either. Um, and that's, in a sense, what Peter did, right? In verses 11 through 14, he was eating and drinking with the Gentiles, and then the Jews came, and he's like, Ugh. <laughs> I'm going to start to separate myself. I, I don't want to. I don't want to be yelled at by by people who came from Jerusalem, you know. And he he fell he fell victim to that. But if we don't stand for the truth of the gospel, then what the heck are we going to stand for? What do we stand for? All right. Fifth question: Law versus faith. I told you I'd get through it. Look, it's only eleven fifteen. Ten fifteen. Eleven fifteen would be real trouble. <laughs> Ten fifteen. And I know that clock is fast. No, actually, they changed it. No, it's still fast. It's a couple minutes fast. Question five. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, this is very similar to the question in verse two. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Uh, the focus is slightly different. Uh, the he who supplies the Spirit, of course, is God. And the question is, does he supply the Spirit because we're good enough? Does he give you the Spirit for sanctification because you're good enough? And if that's the question, then how much do we have to do to get the Spirit? What's the minimum requirement? If you're going to add works, well, how much works do you need? It's, you know, I mean, in school... Well, you know, when I was in school, what, 65, 60% was enough to pass, right? You can get by with a D minus if you got a 60, 59 or below was failing. Uh, so is that, a, is that enough? You know, do we have to only, 
you know, do we only have to do, you know, uh, 60% of the good works that are required of us? What's the number? What's, what's the requirement? I mean, that's, that goes back to the question that you hear in the Gospels that Jesus asks, and somebody comes, or somebody comes up and asks Jesus, good master, what do I have to do? What is the greatest of the commandments? In other words, we've got a lot of commandments. Can you give me the, the ones I really need to keep? Okay, That's kind of the heart of that question. And so what do you have to do? When God performed the miracles during the Exodus, did he do so because Israel was good? <laughs> no. He did it because he remembered the covenant that he made with their fathers and said, because I love you and I've set my love upon you, I will bring you out of slavery and I will bring you to the promised land that I promised your fathers that I would bring you to. There, there, there was no, like, all right, guys, you know, I'll save you, but you've got to start working there. Let's, let's start a revolution. Let's, let's start a, a freedom movement. And then when you've, when you've got a critical mass, I'll, I'll, I'll help you out. No, that's not how it goes. There's no such thing as a performance-based Christianity. The Christian life is one that is a life of faith from beginning to end. You cannot... Get the Spirit, have miracles worked on your behalf through works of the law. It is only by hearing with faith. So you're saved by faith, you're sanctified by faith, you're glorified by faith. It is all of faith. This is a good quote. It says, faith is what fuels the Christian life. We receive the Spirit not by works of the law, but rather by hearing with faith. And it is this faith that then not only begins but continues the Christian life. That's true, right? Now, that seems counterintuitive to ourselves, right? Because I always felt like, well, you know, but, okay, faith, it's good, okay, but i got to do something, right? i got to do, no. No, the doing just comes as a byproduct of the faith. So just to bring this to a close, antinomianism doesn't save, right? against the law doesn't save. Just having an easy believism doesn't save. Legalism doesn't save. You can't add works to the gospel. Only the true gospel saves. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that the life that you now live is a life of faith because Christ lives in you. And it's very easy for us to slip into either extreme that I mentioned at the beginning, right? You know, to come off the middle of the road and to fall into the right ditch or to fall into the left ditch, whether that's easy believism or lordship salvation over correction. That's why we need to be reminded of the gospel every day. And the gospel, beloved, is a declaration. It is a good news declaration that you don't have to do anything, <laughs> To, to, to be saved. You don't have to do anything to be justified and to be declared righteous in the sight of God. It's a declaration that what we could not do, Jesus did for us. And there's nothing that needs to be added to it, and there's nothing you should take away from that. And I've mentioned this before too, right? Jesus plus anything equals what? Nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's, if you're wondering, I, I, I twisted a book title. There was, it was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
But uh, I like saying Jesus plus anything. Because that's what the message of Galatians is. The message of Galatians is Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So you, you, you need to have the true gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel every day and have a clear distinction between law and gospel. So that's it for this morning. Next time, which will, for me, be three weeks. Well, no, two weeks. The 12th. March 12th is Lord willing when I'll be back. Uh, We're going to look at Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9.